Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my highly intra-individually variable friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about variability, both within individuals and within groups, as a source of really interesting and often overlooked research questions to complement our well-developed skill set for studying means. Along the way, we also mention natatoriums, or is it natatoria, finding your spot, picking at a scab, the polkaholics, location scale models, high-fiving statisticians, inception, cooking with gas, corvettes, fingernails in the dashboard, Kai Rizdal, ooh, Kai, your grandfather's stock, parenting consistency, and leaving Patrick unattended in your office. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You and I text back and forth before we record an episode to try to have some kind of opening discussion or story or something. Turns out a lot of times we don't. I don't know if <laughs> listeners are aware of that. Don't give away our trade secrets. <laughs> <laughs> but last night I went to pick up my daughter from diving. She's a springboard diver on her high school team. And I was sitting outside the natatorium waiting for her. And I was texting you and neither of us had any opening for today. Nothing. <laughs> And we did our usual, which is we'll figure it out when we get there. Mm-hmm. Christy got in the car and we're driving away. And I asked the mandatory, so how was practice? And she said, oh, I am so psyched. I figured out my spot on my back one and a half. Hmm. And I said, oh, that's totally cool. Not having any idea what <laughs> the issue was, because that's what parents huh. do, right? Mm-hmm. Then I came clean and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, I've been working on my one and a half for a long time. And she has for months. She's been working on this back one and a half. And she's not been able to do it in competition. And I asked her why. And she said, well, it's too inconsistent. She said, sometimes I go long, sometimes I go short. And you have to have consistency before you can even put it on your list for competition. Mm -hmm. And she said, tonight, I found my spot so that I can make it consistent. And I asked what that was. And she said, well, every diver has a visual that you know where to kick out from the dive. So if you're in doing flips or spins or whatever, she has a back double off a three meter. And she said, yeah, if you think about it, you see Mm. ceiling wall, water wall, ceiling wall, water wall, ceiling (laughs) wall. (laughs) Very, very quickly that this happens. Mm -hmm. And she said, you have to have an exact spot in your visual field so that you know when to kick out so that you'll enter properly. Mm -hmm. And she said, I've not had a spot. And tonight I figured it out. I found it. And she said, I did 10 consecutive back one and a halves and hit all 10. Wow. She said, it's not inconsistent anymore. I've got it spot on. I'm so excited I can put it on my dive sheet for competition. Well, driving back, I'm like, we're going to talk about variability today. What are the theoretical implications? What are the statistical implications? And after texting you, I got nothing. Yeah. She got in the car and told me that story. And so now, there you go. It's all about variability. I think once you can get your kids to do all your work for you... You got it made. So nicely done. I thanked her in the car and I said, all right, Greg is going to be very happy. We got something for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. And I was happy for her as well. Whatever. You know, the whole blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whatever. That is a perfect topic for us to get into. You know, a lot of our statistical lives are spent focusing on means of things. In fact, we have built this tremendous architecture around understanding means and variations on means. 
and we think that there's a lot of story that goes on there. But what you're describing is something that really complements that. It has to do more with variability, and in this case, intra-individual variability. And I think there are some incredibly cool questions that we can address that have to do with variability. Not things that are masquerading as variability. <clears throat> Analysis of variance, <clears throat> for example. <laughs> Wait, you're not going to kill that now, are you? <laughs> Well, actually, there's no reason yeah. we couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when we talked about factor analysis, we said exploratory factor analysis isn't exploratory. Confirmatory factor analysis isn't confirmatory. I'm going to throw on that heap. Analysis of variance isn't about variance. Discuss. It's our fault that we teach things like analysis of variance when we're comparing means. That we talk about reduction in variance and multiple R squared and changes in multiple R squared and proportion of variance explained when we're talking about shifting a mean up and down a line. It is completely our fault. How we teach it, how we talk about it, how we write about it. Is it any wonder that when somebody uses an analysis of variance and you say, but you're doing mean comparisons, you're not modeling variance, you get a blank look. Yeah. I'm with you. Analysis of variance is actually not analysis of variance. It's a comparison of means. It's very clever. All right. I'm going to give props to Anova before we stab it here. Third and fourth rib. Right. <laughs> Let me get my shiv. <laughs> Let me at least momentarily revel in the beauty that is analysis of variance so that we understand what the name is and then curse the darkness that that name has brought us. Fisher is really, I think, responsible for this. And if we have two groups, if we have three groups, if we have four groups, independent groups for now, each of which has a mean, if there is a null hypothesis that says that the means of the populations from which those groups came are equal then we expect that the sample means that we have from those, let's say, four groups, we expect them to fluctuate randomly. In other words, we expect the means to have variance. Well, what we also know is that scores have variance. In fact, when we first learned about variance, we learned about it in terms of scores. We have variances of scores in each of these groups, but we also have means of each of these groups, and those means vary. And what Fisher did, which was very, very clever was Fisher said, well, we know how to convert back and forth between the variance of scores and the variance of means. So here's what we can do. If we look at how much these means vary from each other, these four random means, then we could infer how much a single population would have to vary in terms of its scores to have produced four means with that much variability. So we have a variance of scores that is estimated from the means, we have a variance of scores that's actually from the scores that we have in those groups. And what Fisher said is, well, we can use this variance ratio that I think it was Snedekor came up with to make a test of, in the end, means. But it was called analysis of variance, and I think that really did mess us up along the way. A thing I like to do when I teach this is I'll grab some people and have them come up to the front of the room, you know, 10 or 15 people, mm -hmm. and I make them into three groups of five. And I would teach in this lecture room that had a whiteboard that ran from one wall to the other. It must have been 25 feet wide. Mm -hmm. And I would just make three marks that I said represented a mean that was on a number line. And I had the five people stand really close to their mark. Mm -hmm. right, and I'd talk to the class and I'd say, look at the data. 
can you make an inference about are the means meaningfully different from one another? And we'd have some discussion. Mm -hmm. And then I'd have the people start to step away from their means. And they'd step farther Mm -hmm. and farther. And pretty soon they're intermingling with one another. And I'd have them stop. And I'd say, well, now how about the difference in the mean? And then I'd have them step farther and farther until it's almost like a cocktail party where you can't tell what person belongs to what mean. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say, okay, the means haven't changed, but has our ability to distinguish the means changed? And then I have them go sit down. It's awesome because that takes up like 45 minutes and I don't have to write a lecture (laughs) for that particular topic. I love the visual on what you just said. The individual people, when they're crowded around their own mean, is within group variability. And then, Mm -hmm. as you say, we can scale up the difference between the means to have between group variability. It's hyperbolic to say analysis of variance does not analyze variance. I mean, the F test is a ratio of variances, but it is only a mechanism to make an inference about the difference between group means. We have something called analysis of variance when it's actually giving us an insight on something very different. For me, point one is, well, let's remember that, yes, we're analyzing ratios of variances, but we're making inferences about differences in means. But two, I wonder if we could analyze variances. Let's think about this F ratio for a minute. This F ratio is tied to an F distribution, which, by the way, wasn't called an F distribution. It was a distribution that was a ratio of variances that Snedecor discovered. And again, I'm not a history guy, but Snedecor is an interesting historical figure. I believe he founded the first statistics department in the U.S. at Iowa State. And the distribution for the ratio of two independent variances is what we get in the F distribution. And it was named F after Fisher. So the purpose of this F distribution was to be able to do hypothesis testing of two independent variances. And what Fisher did is he repurposed it to get two different variance estimates so he could make inferences about means. But the original distribution really was, still is, all about variances. Imagine we had two populations defined by country of origin, people in the U.S. and people in, pick a country, what do you want? Norway. I love Norway. I visited there a year ago and they were exceedingly kind to me. I actually grew up in a Norwegian community in Seattle. Snakadenorsk? We. Good. All right. So we got people in the US, we got people in Norway, and let's imagine that we wanted to know about life satisfaction. Now, the natural question that someone might ask about life satisfaction is which country has higher life satisfaction, right? That's a mean type of question. And that's interesting to a point. But what about a question that says, which country is more diverse in terms of life satisfaction? Which country has greater variability in life satisfaction? Well, you know what? I have a sample of individuals from the US, random sample of individuals from Norway, and I have these two variance estimates. I can form a ratio of those two variance estimates and the F test allows me to make some inference, not about means, but about which of those two countries might be more diverse in terms of life satisfaction. That was the original purpose of the F test before it got all effed up. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea of this F distribution, it's really like a starting point for me for research questions that could be asked about variances. In this case, it's about the simplest question there is. I have two populations, and I would like to know if there are differences in their variances. 
but we could imagine a whole host of other questions about variances that start at this point and then blow up really, really quickly. What I find so interesting about it is these kinds of questions have been sitting in front of us since we were undergrads in stats class. Mm -hmm. But the way I believe that we're taught and the way that the models work, neither of us are bad-mouthing mean comparisons. I mean, this is like huge, huge advantage Mm -hmm. in many, many situations. How I often think about it is, is it a lost opportunity? So for example, all of us have in some way or another taken 10 items on a sample of 100, and for each person, we add up the 10 items and divide by 10, and that's the scale score. In and out, nobody gets hurt. We have a mean score of the 10 items, and we use that for depression, anxiety, parenting, whatever it is you're studying. But there's a variance among those items for that individual. We never take that with us. We never think about it. Mm -hmm. So two people could have the same mean of five on the set of items, but one person has no variability. They respond five to all the items, and the other person has big variability. Mm -hmm. Ones to some items, fives to some items, ten to some items. But we treat those as fives when we take the mean. We don't carry that along. This has been there the whole time. We just don't think about it. And then it even scales up more, I think, for me at least, in the multi-level model. So we have observations nested within groups. So take students in classroom and you're interested in student performance. Well, there's some overall mean performance of the class. And those vary over classrooms. So classroom A has a higher mean than classroom B. And classroom B has exactly the same mean as classroom C. And then we have 20 or 30 classrooms. But there's variability in scores around those that, of course, goes into the estimation of the model. But that variability itself could be of theoretical interest. So what are characteristics of a classroom that have greater student-to-student variability compared to classrooms that have less student-to-student variability? And as soon as you start thinking this way, you're off to the races, especially at least in my neck of the woods if you move to repeated measures. Say you're doing some kind of intensive longitudinal design and you're asking about anxiety daily. And so every day I fill out anxiety measure, every day you fill out an anxiety measure, and you and I both have a mean of five on a scale of one to ten. But mine are four, five, five, six, four, five, four, six, and yours is one, three, seven, ten, five, six, eight, five. That itself can be an outcome of interest that we might want to predict. I think it's fascinating. I think as soon as you start picking away at the scab of variance, either as a dependent variable or as a predictor variable, it is eye-opening in the kinds of things that we can ask from our theories. So there are two things that you have mentioned here that I would like to, even though they have parallels, I would like to set them in different places for now. One has to do with variability across individuals that is of interest, and the other is variability that is within individuals. And the multi-level model that you're describing can accommodate both, and there are incredibly interesting questions about both. When we talk about differences across individuals, variability across individuals that might occur under different conditions at different time points, etc., that's often something that we have wished away in the statistical models that we have had, right? We have made assumptions of homogeneity in certain spots or homoscedasticity. It's not that we just haven't thought about it as interesting. It's that we baked an assumption in, in many cases, where that wasn't even a thing. 
But once we open our eyes to the possibility that this isn't just something that can differ across groups, but can differ interestingly, meaningfully, all of a sudden, it opens up a lot of opportunities for us to answer questions that we hadn't asked before. So really what you're raising is pocaholics. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the show has begun. We are the pocaholics. That is exactly what I'm raising, the Quantitude House Band. The Quantitude House Band, the Pocaholics, is led by Don Hedeker. Not only one of the coolest human beings on the face of the planet, but he is arguably one of the most important biostatisticians working in the field. And Don has a breathtakingly cool set of models that he broadly refers to as location scale models that are after this very thing that we're doing. And he is the most lucid and engaging writer. I love reading his papers. Don has a wonderful description, and he's written several of these papers. Although they generalize to a lot of different settings, he is focused on intensive longitudinal designs, looking at multiple repeated measures within an individual. Mm -hmm. And he's done collaborative work with some of his colleagues, and they have several really important papers about looking at emotion regulation and smoking and adolescent and young adult smoking behavior on positive and negative affect. But he makes this wonderful, compelling, theoretical argument at the front end that, yes, that it's important to look at the impact of smoking on negative affect at the mean level. That is, if you were to take 20 observations for me, 20 observations for Greg, 20 observations for you, take the average and look at are there differences as a function of smoking and the mean of the outcome – but he makes this really engaging argument that the variability is equally, if not maybe more important. And so the variability of my 20 observations around my mean versus the variability of Greg's 20 observations around Greg's mean and isolating that as a dependent variable in the model. Now, that variability plays a critical role in a standard repeated measures multi-level model. But as Greg alluded to earlier, we make assumptions about homoscedasticity, that the distribution that my residuals were drawn from is the same as the distribution that Greg's residuals are drawn from. And that's how we're able to pool across the individuals and get a single estimate of that level one variance. Don has built a model where you can isolate where there's a model-implied estimate of my variance, of Greg's variance, of your variance, and when that's defined in the log likelihood of the model, you can then bring in predictors to say, are there between-person characteristics that in part govern people who are more variable in their repeated measures from those who are less variable? It's freaking magic. And if I were to assign a name analysis of variance to anything, this would be a leading candidate for it. Because you are literally looking at what characteristics of individuals impact how stable they are, if you want to use the term stable, or how homogeneous they are in their behavior. So think about what, what was the outcome that you had? He was studying adolescent smoking behavior and positive and negative affect. So variability in emotion. Right. So imagine that between Patrick and me, if you took 20 measures of my positive affect, you would find them all to be very high, very, very stable. But Patrick, on the other hand, if you have 20 <laughs> measures... 
They're, <laughs> they're going to be all over the place at any given moment. He's a time bomb, people. Mood swings! Mood swings. <laughs> Mood swings. Help. I'm out. I'm done with this podcast entirely. <laughs> Take care, buddy. Good luck having a one-sided conversation, you hairy <laughs> Dude, keep going. This is awesome. God, I hate my life. You're handsome today. I rest my case. (laughs) All right. One point of clarification about this incredibly clever model is that at no point do we ever actually estimate an individual's variance on an outcome, whether it's mood, right, positive affect, negative affect, whatever. Instead, it's implied within the model. In the same way that when we do growth models, for example, I don't literally fit a line to your points and get your slope and your intercept, but we can figure out what the implications are of those overall. The term I like sometimes is it's written into the likelihood. That is, we're writing out the model in a way that these variances become a parameter in the model and the predictors become a parameter in the model. Let me motivate by a simple example, because it helps me get my head around it, but it also shows the excitement for the kind of things that we can do. Imagine you have a treatment that reduces anxious symptoms, Mm -hmm. all right? So you've got some kind of coping mechanism, you have some kind of problem-solving strategies, whatever. You have a treatment for that. And you have a control group. So some people don't get the treatment, some do. You take 20 assessments over time, asking about daily anxiety and negative affect. And then you compare the mean of the treatment group and the mean of the control group, and there's no difference. Mm -hmm. The means are identical. On average, over the 20 periods, is there's no change at all. No growth, no reduction, no nothing. And your treatment's a wash and it does no good. But imagine that in the treatment group, your coping mechanisms that you're teaching, your problem-solving skills that you're teaching, it reduces the lability in your emotional expressions. Your highs aren't as high, your lows aren't as low. You're homogenizing behavior over the period. And maybe the mean doesn't change, but what you're trying to do is just even out the behavior. That's in the variance. And if you don't do these kinds of models, you would never be able to bring empirical data to bear that even though you didn't have a mean shift, you had a potentially meaningful reduction in the day-to-day expression of negative affectivity that from a clinical standpoint could be a huge gain in the quality of life for an individual. So if we tie that back to Christy diving, then it would be as if she did a variety of trials with not having found her spot, and there would be a certain amount of variability. And some of the dives were fantastic, and some of the dives were much less fantastic. When she finds her spot, all of the dives are far, far more consistent. Now, she might also have improved (laughs) in her dives. But my understanding is that what she has done is she has greatly reduced her own intra-individual variability as a result of locating her spot. That's a great tieback because what she told me last night is if you don't have a spot, you're guessing on when to kick out Mm -hmm. and you're as likely to go long as you are short, which means that on average, you're going to be exactly spot on, right? 
the old joke of the statisticians <laughs> playing darts and the first one throws three darts into the wall above the dartboard mm-hmm. and the second three darts into the wall below the dartboard and they high five each other and say bullseye on average she had a perfect dive but they're all over hell's half acre after she got her spot and she does 20 dives the average is they're all perfect but that the variability is even those that are not perfect are very nearly perfect. Why she was so excited last night is she can put this dive on her competition list now. Mm-hmm. Now there's enough consistency where she can start to work on really fine-tuning the dive. So that's a great tieback. That's exactly right. With a spot and without a spot, on average, she enters exactly as she should, but the dive-to-dive variability is massively different with and without a spot, and that maps exactly onto a treatment control. And so treatment and control is really just a starting point, right? In the same way that a t-test is like a starting point for a general linear model where you have a predictor variable that is just a dichotomy. That can expand in all kinds of ways not just to having an X predictor that is continuous, but to having multiple predictors. Same thing happens in this model. Ask yourself, what are all the different reasons that people might be more consistent or less consistent in whatever the outcome is, whether it's mood, whether it's dive quality? So this model extends out, the whole X side blows up. We'll go back to the movie Inception. We brought that up last (laughs) week with Dora the Explorer a couple weeks ago, whenever it was. Isn't there a scene in there where, like, the city folds over on itself? All right, so here, we're going to fold the city over. I guess I thought that the dream space would be all about the visual. My question is, what happens when you start messing with the physics of it all? If you get your head around that there is person-to-person differences in the variability of the repeated measures over time, Mm -hmm. ready for the folding? You have variance among the variances so there is individual variability meaning between person variability Mm -hmm. in within person variability of the repeated measures around some baseline and don works into his model that if you predict those person level variances well there's a residual Part of the variability can be explained by our set of covariates, and some is residual variance. So we can fold the city over on itself and say there is a residual variability among the person-level variances net the optimal linear combination of our set of predictors. And now we're cooking with gas, right? So think about small variability among variances versus large variability among variances. How cool is that? (laughs) So if we're talking about models where we have predictors, not of a mean, but rather of a variance, which is what the location scale models are doing, what are some of the cool questions that you think about when you think about the potential for this framework? What I find interesting is way back 100 years ago in my own clinical training, the theories and the interventions would explicitly talk about this kind of thing, Mm -hmm. about children who might have ADHD-like behavior and trying to bring in interventions that can reduce the highs and reduce the lows. There's some personality disorders where there's a lot of emotional lability kind of a bipolar two or bipolar kind of things where you have very high highs and very low lows and having an intervention that is explicitly designed to 
dampen those peaks and troughs. But the irony is the traditional models that we use to analyze that don't look at that. Mm -hmm. They only use that variability as part of the error term, as part of the mean squared error, the within-person variability to try to examine the signal-to-noise in comparing means. And so I think for decades, there's been a disjoint in the theoretical models and the way that we talk about how behavior unfolds over time and how it can be influenced by some preventive intervention and the measurements and models that we use to evaluate that. How about you on your education side of the street? Well, I don't necessarily have something that's education specific, but there are a number of examples of potential for this that come to mind. And in fact, when I read the news, for example, I try to pick up on things that are ripe for this type of analysis. I remember one that I saw not that long ago that had to do with how consistent people are in terms of when they go to sleep and what factors influence variability in terms of either the time that they choose to go to sleep or how long it takes them to go to sleep, whether it's screen time or diet, what kinds of things factor into not do you tend to go to sleep later or do you tend to go to sleep earlier, but how much consistency do you have in terms of the time that your body is able to shut down and go to sleep? I thought that was a pretty cool example of variability as an outcome. That example, plus the ones that you're talking about, are all about intra-individual variability. But as we said at the beginning, these things can also apply to intra-group kinds of variability as well. In a school setting, for example... We might be interested in what makes kids in a classroom more similar, whether it's in terms of achievement, in terms of belief systems, in terms of behavior, what characteristics tend to be associated with homogeneity or heterogeneity at a classroom level. This also has applications in the business world where your groups are teams and you want to know about how much cohesiveness there is among team members or how much variability there is among those team members. And by the way, cohesiveness isn't necessarily the most productive characteristic of a team. It might be that having great differences among team members are really the most beneficial thing. But we can imagine this type of model having applications in all different kinds of scenarios. This is what I love about the whole topic, because yet again, we come back to, I see dead people. <laughs> you start seeing these kinds of questions everywhere. As soon as you start thinking about things that are clustered together and you would think about an overall level, you can immediately start thinking about variability around that level. A buddy of mine studied the development of trust in new cadets at West Point. Hmm. So you have six or eight of these 18 or 19-year-old women and men at West Point who are each organized into a squad and there's a squad leader. And you want to understand trust of the cadets in their leader. Hmm. You have eight individuals' perceptions of trust in the squad leader and the typical model would take the mean of that and that would be a characteristic of the squad. But think about two squads, again, that have the same mean, but one has a very small variability and one has a very high variability. Mm -hmm. So the very small variability is there's a lot of cohesion around that perceived trust for those eight soldiers in their squad leader. But the higher one is some people are very trusting, some people are not trusting at all. Just like everything we do in our field, as soon as we see differences, we got to hanker in to try to predict it. So what is the characteristic of the squad leader mm -hmm. that would be associated with a more cohesive team versus a less cohesive team? 
a standard multi-level model does not evaluate that and it fundamentally cannot. Mm-hmm. But Don's approach and the related models associated with that, that's precisely what the question is. Can you identify characteristics of the squad leader that would lead to greater team cohesion relative to other characteristics that might not? So let me run with that example. I don't know anything about those data, but let's imagine now that those cadets were assessed at many different points in time in terms of the trust that they have in their, is it squad leader? Yes. Okay. So perhaps over, I don't know what a meaningful period of time is, but let's say maybe over five weeks. Each week we have each cadet fill out some information about the trust that they have in the squad leader. What we would then have is not just average level of trust in week one, week two, week three, week four, week five, but we would also have the variability across cadets within a particular squad in terms of trust. And just as we're interested in modeling change in trust on average, I could imagine wanting to model something about change in the homogeneity of that trust. So funny you should ask that because the whole study was a repeated measures design. Okay. And they were interested in the development of trust. So trajectories of trust over time, Mm -hmm. we have a starting point and a rate of change for each soldier, but we could expand that example and it scales up now so that we can look at that homogeneity and heterogeneity with respect to these developmental trajectories over time. So I'm dying to fit this with a growth model, not just for the mean structure, or let me say it differently, not just for the location structure but also for the variability structure, or in other words, also for the scale structure. I would like to know whether or not over time these soldiers are becoming increasingly consistent and what trajectory might be associated with that. So this really is ripe for laying a growth model on top of this that has both a location component and a scale component. Exactly. And it scales up to so many different kinds of settings. Mm -hmm. Imagine you have students in a classroom and you're looking at developmental trajectories of math ability. Our standard three-level growth model would allow for time within person and person within teacher. And then each student would have their own trajectory and we would have all the variance components. But we make a fundamental assumption in those models that the within-class variability is equal across the classrooms. Mm -hmm. It's not only not a focus of the analysis as an outcome, it's imposed as part of the estimation. It's the homoscedasticity of that variance. And so it's kind of like turning two knobs at once as one is getting your head around that we can have these class-to-class variability differences in the characteristics of these trajectories, but then through Don's magic, we can isolate those and model those as part of our predictor set. To me, it's all just so beautiful. And one of the main goals here, I think, of this conversation is for people to ask questions of this type and be able to design studies that gather data in this way. Not everybody out there is doing an ecological momentary assessment study. Not everybody is doing a study where biological and or psychological data are being gathered repeatedly over periods of time to the tune of hundreds, if not thousands of data points. But We can still design very, very thoughtful studies where we look at, for example, the trajectory in heterogeneity of, in this case, trust, as you said, 
Or imagine that we have people involved in exercise programs, and we would like to know about consistency of bedtimes when you are first in an exercise program, when you're in the second week of an exercise program, third week. You can imagine all different kinds of designs where you purposefully gather data that are repeated measures within time. There are fascinating questions that can be addressed here. And I really want people to start thinking about ways not just to ask questions at a mean level, but also to ask questions at a variability level. That's the whole point here. I'm never going to dissuade from thinking about new and exciting designs and data collections and theoretically derived research hypothesis. I'm totally on board. But to stress, these models can be applied to existing data right now. If you have repeated measures nested within individual, you can use this. You don't even have to have an EMA kind of design. Design. Right. Now, Don talks about having higher numbers of repeated measures, has advantages in stabilizing estimates, things like that. But you don't need 100 repeated observations. If you have kids nested within class, patients nested within therapists, any of these things that has nested data structure, these kinds of models are available right now, right out of the box. Don has been writing about this stuff for a decade. Okay, so now let me poke a little bit. I think it's incredibly interesting what the things are that might be predictors of consistency of bedtime or of mental health measures or of trust. But I also can think about questions, for example, to what extent is consistency of your bedtime associated with specific health outcomes? And that's a different kind of question. It still involves variability, but now I've got variability over on the other side. Right, I have variability as a predictor. Mm. What do I do with that? Oh, that's a great question. And it brings up one of my heroes in the field is John Nesselroad. <laughs> and many of his colleagues, but John was really one of the thought leaders in this. So the example you just gave out of my neck of the woods is I did some early work in parenting and parenting influences in the prediction of problem behavior. And one of the most important dimensions of parenting is consistency and discipline. Mm -hmm. That if eating in front of the TV is punished on one day, it's also punished on another day. It's not, you can do something sometimes, but not other times. Kids thrive in predictability and in structure. And so what we've done back in the day is you ask the parent, how consistent are you? Is this a usual rule that you would follow? Hmm. We get a consistency of discipline measure. Or you could do some observations over time where you witness how mm -hmm. consistent is a parent in their discipline. Maybe they're in a lab setting. Maybe you're allowed to watch in their home, whatever that might be. And you actually don't ask the parent, but you observe that and you have some parent level measure about the degree to which you're consistent in the use of discipline with your child over some period of time. And that becomes a predictor. So John Nesselrode was talking about this back in the 70s and the 80s. What a golden period mm -hmm. for measurement and design and analysis of repeated measures data. There were a whole group of these scientists working on this. And, oh, I would have loved to have been at the table for some of those conversations. Back in the 70s, they were inventing stuff that we just take for granted today. Sure. Not only is John a titan as a scientist, but he's just a titan as a human being. But John was all over this decades ago in talking about, okay, so if we have 10 repeated measures of this particular measure, we can take a mean of that and get some, listeners can't see me using air quotes, but some trait-like estimate, right? The mean mm -hmm. of 10 repeated measures is some characteristic of me 
over those 10 measures. But he said, wait a minute, we got 10 measures. We get a mean of that sitting right in front of me is the variance among those. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I have a mean of five. You have a mean of five. I have a variance of 20. Mood swings! You have a variance of one. Boring. (laughs) Why would we take the fives and leave the variances behind? Mm Mm-hmm. And John said, screw that, bring the variances with you. We'll take the square root and we'll use it as a predictor in the model. So not only do we have some measure of central tendency, but we have some measure of variability. And this was a huge insight, I think, in doing just what you said. Don's location scale model has the variances on the dependent variable side of the model conceptually. Mm -hmm. And what John was doing was putting it on the independent variable having a standard deviation as a person-level predictor in some kind of general linear model. And I want to do that, honestly, just as often as I want to do the stuff that I can do within a location scale model. But there are some problems with doing it the way that Nestle wrote. Wasn't he a Corvette enthusiast, by the way? He would only drive Corvettes. Right. (laughs) And he took me for a ride once. So the guy is like Uh 6'5", handsome, rugged, smart, one of the most caring human beings you could ever hope to meet. And holy cow, that guy could drive a Corvette. (laughs) My fingernail marks are still on his dashboard. (laughs) Still in his (laughs) dashboard. And a tiny little urine patch. Um, (laughs) So in the models that he was doing, if I'm not mistaken, there were a couple of things going on. First of all, unlike the location scale models, it's not something that's just implied by the model. It is literally an external calculation that occurs, and then you bring it in as its own summary statistic, right? Yep, that's exactly right. Okay, so that's thing one. Thing two, if I recall, it's not the variance that comes in. It was a standard deviation that is in the same metric, right? So it's not in squared units. It's a standard deviation. Is that? That's exactly right. And that creates some problems, doesn't it? Yeah, there are a handful of problems that have yet to be fully resolved. People are still working on this problem. But if a quanti person out there is thinking about these things at the level of the likelihood I think we have the architecture available where it could be built into the model in a particular way. But yeah, I mean, again, just for hypothetical sake, let's say you have a sample of individuals and you have 10 repeated measures and you compute the mean of the 10 repeated measures for each person and you compute the standard deviation of the 10 repeated Mm -hmm. measures for each person and you bring them in as predictors in the model. What's funny is nobody bats an eye at taking the mean. We've been doing this for 150 years. Uh But all of a sudden, people like squint and cock their head at the standard deviation. Well, it's just another Mm -hmm. descriptive statistic of a set of observed measures. But there are a couple of limitations. It is a nonlinear transformation of this variance. So you're taking a square Mm -hmm. root of that, which has certain implications. In smaller sample sizes, it tends to be biased. It tends to be characterized by unreliability. So we're making the same assumption in the GLM of perfect reliability and we're bringing in a flawed measure. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, I can sleep at night with those limitations. Mm -hmm. The one that I find more troubling is the sample mean and sample standard deviation can be pretty highly correlated. It is an artifact of the way that we're calculating and retaining these. And indeed, 
to talk about looking at what is the unique effect of the mean above and beyond the standard deviation and vice versa is you start getting into some pretty weird multicollinearity spaces Mm -hmm. that kind of stop the ship in the water. Yeah. But I'll tell you, it doesn't stop me from wanting to have variability as a predictor. In fact, I want variability on both sides here. I want variability as an independent variable. I want variability as a dependent variable. I want complete flexibility to be able to ask questions of variances just as I do of means because there are so many cool questions here, right? I want to know what things influence inconsistency in bedtimes. I want to know what things inconsistency in bedtimes influence downstream. I I want to have all of this. So I'm very greedy about it. And I think there's so many rich research questions that could be addressed here. And you see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. I rented a car once, and this shows the kind of car that I own. I rented a car that I hadn't seen this before, but it has a little gauge of the miles per gallon. Mm -hmm. And it goes from like zero to 60, and it gives you an average of your miles per gallon. And so the way I drive, it's like five. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you have some averaging. If you're thinking about buying a car, it says, oh, well, in city driving, it has 28 miles per gallon. That's the average. Mm-hmm. Have you ever watched one of these gauges? It wildly goes from, yeah. you know, zero to 40 to two to 30. Well, that's variability. Think about a stock. There is actually an index. Well, why funny you should mention Kai Rizdal. <laughs> In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. Notice I haven't in in a moment of passion called you Kai. No, but you scrawled his name on your notebook. (laughs) (laughs) But you have a stock. There is literally a numerical measure for a given stock of volatility, Mm -hmm. which is not just what is the level, the average stock price over time, but how volatile is it? On a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. does it go high and low and high and low? Or is this just a grinded out IBM kind of, it's your grandfather's yeah. stock that he would buy? And you see this everywhere. And whether it be on the left side of the equal sign or the right side of the equal sign or both, is to think about a theoretical question where variability predicts variability. That is insanely interesting. Imagine looking at the consistency and discipline that you get an actual measure over time. You're not asking for a parent's retrospective report Mm -hmm. of on a scale of 1 to 10, how consistent do you think you are in discipline? What a fool's errand that item is, is we do an observation over two weeks and we get a numerical estimate of their consistency of discipline and then look at the consistency of bedtime in the child. As I mentioned before, as children thrive in predictability, what time is dinner? How long are they allowed to watch TV? When is bedtime? The greater variability in these things, that's actually a risk factor for other problem behaviors. Given all the different interesting questions that can be addressed about variability, both as an independent variable and as a dependent variable, this feels like tremendously fertile ground for methodological research. Aren't you and your grad student working on this? You lassoed me once in your office where you brought Ian (laughs) to describe a remarkably cool paper. What is she working on that you're also affixing your name to? Actually, what happened, I don't know if you were aware of this. So I have a wonderful student, Yifeng. 
When you work with a student and it's a very successful relationship, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, you reach this point where you feel like the student is learning less and less from you and you start flipping over to where you are learning more and more from the student. I think that is the best possible relationship that you can have. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. And I learn a lot by working with all of my students, and currently I'm learning a lot by working with E. One time when you were visiting, as you just alluded to, you were sitting in my office. I went to E's office and I said, hey, a friend of mine is visiting. Could you come in and just tell him a little bit about the research that you're working on? So she comes in. She didn't know it was you. And she sat down. And so she gave you a pitch, a total pitch, cold, uh -huh. about the stuff that she's working on. I, <laughs> I think she did pretty well. You're scary. You're really scary. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> so my end of that is first you yeah. left me unattended in your office, and that's when I wrote a <laughs> couple of things on your whiteboard that later my came first mistake. back to that's haunt right. you. But second, <laughs> I felt like I was in my doctoral exams. She describes this remarkable project she's working on, and then she says, if you don't mind, I have just a couple of simple questions. And then, oh, my God, I didn't have an answer to any of them. And I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, huh? What? Oh, yeah, sure. You could probably do that. Yeah, I was super helpful. And I anticipate a co-authorship out of that because of my, yeah. my feedback that I gave at a critical time. Uh -huh. So tell me about the paper. Well, what we're trying to do is twofold. One is to try to blow out the likelihood a bit so that we can have variability on both sides, right? So try to expand some of the stuff that Don has worked on so that we can address a lot of the questions that we have talked about here, but without what I think is a little bit clumsy, and that is that you have to pre-process stuff on the independent side, whereas the dependent side is already built in. So we're trying to get all of that built into one single model. That's step one. Step two, and this is something that hasn't come up in our conversation so far, but that is to deal with measurement error in the variables that you have. So when we measure cadets' trust that they have in their leader, the variability in their scores is both variability in their trust, but also variability that's due to the imprecision associated with that particular measure of trust. So rather than talking about a model that has variability in manifest or measured trust, how would we build a model that has variability in that underlying latent trust? That works both on the outcome side and on the independent side, right? If we wanted to know about stability in a predictor, how could we parse the measurement error from that to get a cleaner estimate of the actual stability of that characteristic? So what we're trying to do simultaneously is make the model more flexible on both the independent and dependent side, as well as to build measurement error accommodation into that structure. Uh, that's exactly what I remember her describing. <laughs> I just nodded a lot. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Keen insights. There's <laughs> professional development advice for the day is just look at something and say, yeah, that's how I would have done it. So people can look forward to the current at all paper that's coming from no, this. No, I right? really support student publications. So he can go ahead and, and uh -huh. draft that and I'll put my name on it. Okay. Okay. A la Bauer and Curran, Bolin and Curran, Biazon and Curran, Colder and Curran, Chasson and Curran. Yeah. Uh -huh. There are two things I love about what you two are working on. One is just the measurement error in general, because I think that's critically important. And John wrote about that back in the 80s. 
is if you're going to take this standard deviation among a set of repeated measures on some outcome that when you think about all the sources of variability, right? Dave Kenny has some really nice work on trait state error models of trying to get variance components from all of these different sources. And so the unreliability is huge. The thing I'm most excited about is you use the term in the likelihood. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we need to go with these models. That's what Don did. Don didn't try to do a data management trick and a merging and a stacking and a whatever. Is he wrote it into the likelihood? He put it in the parameterization of the multivariate distribution mm -hmm. of the variables that you're working with. I'm very excited to see where that comes out because I think, again, not so much that it has biased our prior work. I don't think that's it. It's not like a misspecification. If you don't do these things, your model is wrong. It's actually not, right? We're mm -hmm. making an inference about these mean differences, and we're doing it in precisely the way that we want. Where I get excited about it is what I open the discussion with is, is it a lost opportunity? We're leaving things on the shelf, right? A few days ago, they predicted one inch of snow here in Chapel Hill. <laughs> After 23 years in North Carolina, I made a rookie mistake and I went to the store to pick something up. Not because of the snow, I just needed it. And it was like Armageddon in there. And people right. were buying milk <laughs> and bread and toilet paper. And so not looking at the variance and considering the variance and predicting the variance, you're leaving the last package of toilet paper on the shelf and walking away when we might get an inch of snow <laughs> is it's a lost opportunity. We're not taking advantage of all the data that we have. Again, it's not one of those talks. Mm -hmm. I was in a research talk once where it was this really exciting thing and all these models and everything. And then the woman said, our simulations show these models don't really start to behave until you have at least 500 repeated measures. And I'm like, well, there's an hour of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> we can do these things with the data we have. It doesn't mean we can't design creative interesting, powerful new studies to even better leverage that. But we can do these things with the data that is on our hard drive right now. And why not? Why not look at another dimension of your theory in a way that you haven't been able to before? And I think that's the challenge for people out there is to try to not get rid of the way that you already think about things in terms of means or conditional means, but think about what are the companion questions around variance. Can you address those? And in fact, what you might find is that those are often the more interesting questions. So it all goes back to Christy and her spot on her back one and a half. <laughs> there are two things. I have such a schizophrenic feeling about this. I am mm -hmm. so proud of her and so excited because she actually qualified for states and she will be going to those next week. Wow. And I'm so proud of her, except I actually can't watch her dive because I came from the generation of Greg Luganus. Greg Luganus attempted a reverse two and a half somersault pike position. <laughs> and I am so terrified that she is going to hit her head. It's like agony. I'm like, go, Christy, get down. You're going to kill yourself. Go, Christy. What's wrong with you? Mood swings. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We hope that we got your juices flowing around research questions that have to do with variability, that complement the research questions that have to do with means, and above all, go Christy. 
Go Christie. Thanks, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to listen to similar anti-self-help resources, and please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch at Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access and low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, where we too are relieved to have been acquitted for an unprecedented second time. Quantitude has been brought to you by the country of Norway. If even we can manage to be nice to Patrick, you can only imagine how nice we'll be to you. By software companies who only offer annual leases for their products, a business model that even 20 years ago would have led to our imprisonment for extortion. And by online portals for submitting manuscripts to a journal, making the successful submission of the paper the most difficult part of the entire research endeavor. This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.